Welcome to the Competitive 40K Podcast brought to you by Vanguard Tactics. It's our mission to help you play, progress, and perform at this incredible game of Warhammer 40K, keeping sportsmanship and fair play at its absolute core. I'm your host, Dave Callmill, a grimy combat vet just trying to figure out what's going on and why I have to surrender all my ammo while I'm under this atmosphere processor. Joining me again this week is the Xenos Hunting Watchmaster Extraordinaire, my friend and one of the coaches of Vanguard Tactics, which, by the way, is the greatest 40K Academy and is now the number two team in the World ITC rankings. He is the Corporal Hicks to my private Hudson, Mr. Michael Costello. Michael, welcome back. How are you doing this week? Oh, great. I mean, how could they cut the power, man? They're animals. <laughs> exactly. And this week, we are going to delve into why and how they can cut the power to all of us. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, we got to do our sponsor acknowledgements. Uh, thank you again to Siege Studios for your continued sponsorship uh, of our podcast and uh, for Vanguard Tactics in general. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you need to have anything commissioned painted, be it an entire army or just a single unit, uh, look no further than Siege Studios. James is incredibly talented, as are the rest of the guys on his team. Uh, please check him out online. Uh, and also look them up on Instagram as well. Vanguard Tactics announcements. Uh, the, there's still a few tickets available for the BAO workshop. Uh, please make sure to check it out. Go online if you're going to be at KublaCon. If you're, even if you're not going to play in the Bay Area Open, if you're going to be at KublaCon, you're a 40K uh, fan or you're just somebody who's interested in 40K, sign up for the workshop. Come check it out. You'll meet Steven. Uh, Mike will be there, as will uh, uh, Chris, another VT coach. And you guys will get some great a couple hours of hands-on uh, practice with the actual uh, BAO tournament tables and the terrain, um, bring some models out and you will get a, some really good hands-on training. It's, it's fantastic. Um, Mike, what's going on with uh, the Academy this week? So this week in the Academy, we have dropped the terrain module. This is big. A lot of people have been asking for this. You might think terrain. Okay, well, it, it's just some nice looking features on the table, but no, there's so much you can do to make the terrain feel like it's part of your army uh you guys also talking about i'm assuming um player place terrain and player optimized terrain setups as well yeah absolutely so the player place terrain that is actually coming in a later module called tournament preparation um but using terrain deploying around terrain and some neat little terrain tactics as well um they will be part of this module very cool very cool i i can say from experience that um Obviously, terrain deployment, again, a lot of games are won and lost with deployment, which means you got to know your terrain, you got to know your terrain rules, your keywords, and how to move in around and when to put into terrain and when to stay behind it, and all those things. So that's, that's valuable information for any player. So um, I actually need to, I haven't seen the new module. I, I remember the old one, but I got to see the new one. So I'm going to go check that out probably this weekend. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please like, share, subscribe, give us a five-star review. Um, please let us know how where you can improve. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm all for constructive criticism. Uh, so please, whatever, however um, you're listening to us, whatever service you're, um, you're using, uh, please feel free to, to uh, let us know. You give us some feedback so we can improve our show and uh, get the word further out as to uh, all the hard work that Steve and Mike and I are putting into this podcast. So uh, we appreciate it. We did get a, uh, we've had a lot more positive reviews still coming in. Um, we are now the top ranked uh, Warhammer 40K podcast in the world. It's really an honor to be part of that. And I'm excited to, to announce that fact. The, the ratings and the, the numbers have came in uh, last week. Steve shared it with us. And uh, we're just rocketing up the, the ratings. We really, that's all thanks to you guys. So uh, we really appreciate it. Um, I do want to thank uh, General Zero Hour. He left a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, he said, uh, great show as someone who's rather recently getting into the world 
of 40K. This information is very valuable. My only issue was I cannot seem to find an episode where they discussed the new Tau Codex and was really hoping to get more input on it as I'm building Tau, but in a balanced army. So I was looking for fun advice and input on the new changes. General Zero Hour, we actually did not do a Tau Codex review because um, at the time uh, we were kind of reformatting the show as we have with me coming in. Um, and the uh, Academy actually did a, um, an online uh, masterclass with um, uh, Steve and with Kyle Grundy, who was last year's uh, ITC champion uh, uh, for uh, best in faction for, for the Tau. But I actually was just talking to Kyle yesterday. And in, a, in the next couple of weeks, he and I are going to get together and do a, a deep dive review of the Tau Codex. So we don't have one yet, but it is, it's on its way. So, uh, so thank you very much for the review. Five-star review is much appreciated and uh, appreciate the question as well. We will, we're going to have that review because obviously I'm a huge fan of the greater good. Kyle's a huge fan of the greater good. We're trying to convert Mike to the greater good. So, you know, the effort, the, the, the episodes are coming. Uh, and speaking of which, if you want to find us on social media, you can find Steven on Instagram at, at the Vanguard Tactics. Remember, it's at the Vanguard Tactics, not you got to put the T-H-E in there. Or you won't find him. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram at Infantry Lawyer. And you can find Mike uh, as VT underscore Mike. Uh, and don't forget, you can also go to van, uh, www.vanguardtactics.com to get more information about the Academy. And don't forget to go to YouTube and check out all the Vanguard Tactics uh, stream games and the other content there. Uh, now, uh, this week's rules lawyer segment, um, uh, I want to, uh, as I said, uh, we're going to keep trying to put forth these rules interactions um, that they're going to cause people some headaches and try to, to talk about rules as written versus rules intended. Um, and uh, since that's pretty much what I do for a living uh, when I'm not having fun podcasting. So uh, this week, we're going to talk about a, a, a piece of war gear, speaking of the Tau that I think is a very awkwardly written piece of war gear. It is the Tau Early Warning Override. Uh, the text of the Early Warning Override reads, there's two bullet points. The first one is, each time the bearer fires Overwatch, it scores hits on unmodified hit rolls of five plus instead of six. Pretty straightforward, no question there. Bullet point number two is where we have an issue, I think. It says, each time you use the fire Overwatch stratagem, if the bearer is on the battlefield and its unit is selected to fire Overwatch, Reduce the CP cost of that stratagem by one CP, and then parentheses to a minimum of zero CP. Note that the CP cost is only reduced by one CP for that use of the stratagem. Any future usages of it cost the normal amount of CPs. That's a lot of word salad. Um, and I talk way too much for a living, as we know. So I'm very familiar with too much words. Uh, so it says each time you use the Overwatch strat, each time, not the first time, it says each time, but then it says any future usages of it cost the normal amount. It's very cumbersome wording with the whole if the bear's on the battlefield and its unit is selected to fire. I don't know in what situation you would select a unit to fire Overwatch and it's not on the battlefield, so I don't understand why that was even put in there. Um, so it was just, it reads to me like it was written by a first-year law student who was trying too hard to impress the teacher. Um, so which is it? Can you... Can you fire the Overwatch? And is it only for this unit that it costs zero, you know, minus one CP the first time? Or is it the first time for every time a different early warning override is used? I, I don't understand. I, I'm not, I'm very unclear on it. So, Mike, what do you think? This is a bit of a weird one. Um, the wording's not unique for that last, but there are a few other abilities out there. They are rare. Um, where you can reduce the cost of a, a stratagem 
and then each future use costs the normal amount of CPs. The same wording is there. Uh, but this one, it's just odd, isn't it? Yeah. It's really odd. So each time you use the stratagem, if the bearer is on the battlefield and its unit is selected to fire Overwatch, reduce the CP cost. So we're all agreed. You charge this unit, it overwatches, doesn't cost any CP. But then it's only for that use of the stratagem that it costs zero CP. Future usages of it cost the normal amount of CP. And I think there's two ways to look at this. One of them is the first time that unit uses Overwatch, it's free. In the future, it costs CP. And the other option is it's trying to say that it's only if that unit uses Overwatch, it's free. But Overwatch for any other units uh, in future uses is still one CP. But it's very confused. Yeah. Yeah, my my interpretation of it is, um, if it because what if you if it was only that one use and it didn't give you any other benefits any other time, why would you bother having multiple early warning overrides on the table? So, my my interpretation of it is, and I think this is what rules is written is supposed to be is, um, the first time that unit with that early warning override fires Overwatch, it's minus one CP. Any future usages usages of this of Overwatch by that unit don't get the the CP cost decrease. But if you have another unit with an early warning override, they can still benefit from it in a different time. I, I, that seems to me to be the most common sense interpretation. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so yeah, I I, I think that's what they were going for. But we gotta we gotta clarify with each time that implies every time. And then, and then, but any future uses of it don't. So, it, yeah, when I when I uh, when, when I finally get a chance to go travel out to, to Warhammer World, I want to get a hold of whoever wrote this codex and <laughs> have a conversation. Uh, so, anyway, all right. So, with uh, without much further ado, now that we've covered all that, I I think we can get on to the main topic of this week. Um, so, last week we talked about uh, the first half of the Tyranid Codex, and this week. So this week we're going to talk about the data sheets and then we're going to do the stratagems. Uh, we have a couple of, of army-wide rules still to cover, but um, I want to uh, do those army-wide rules and then let's do the data sheets and then we'll do the stratagems last because a lot of the stratagems, as everyone knows, who's read a codex before, they have a lot of keyword references. And if we haven't gone through the data sheets and you don't know what keywords relate to what, it's going to kind of all be nonsense and go over your heads. So um, let's start with... Um, Obviously, one of the one of the longest running um, one of the longest running rules for uh, for Tyranids has been the idea of synapse. Um, Mike, you want to read the rule for synapse? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because you say synapse and I say synapse, so it's going to be really really interesting for the, the listeners here. <laughs> so, um, if it's got the synapse ability on its data sheet, while a friendly high fleet unit is within six inches of that unit that has synapse then that high fleet unit automatically passes morale. Not that morale is usually that persuasive of a thing, but at least this is going to make sure that you're not, your units aren't breaking and running, especially if you're using large mobs of gaunts or if you've just got that one, high, uh, that one Tyranid warrior left that you don't want to break and run. So um, it's a nice little, little boost. Uh, then we've got the Shadow and the Warp. It's an aura ability. While an enemy Psyker unit is within 18 inches of this unit, 
One, subtract one from Psyche test taken from that enemy unit. And two, each time that enemy unit suffers perils of the warp, it suffers one additional mortal wound. I love it. It's, it's going to make a lot of Psyker units. It doesn't shut them down, but it does make them maybe not want to go quite so hog wild on their um, spam, uh, you know, uh, spamming uh, smites and things like that either. Yeah, it's really strong for uh, deterring the enemy from taking psychic secondaries as well. Because not only can they be denied, but they're also at minus one to cast it, which sudden, suddenly makes these, you know, warp charge four uh, psychic actions a bit less reliable. Yeah, and I believe um, we had when we went over last week, there were things in there that can. There's um, there's warlord traits. There's there's I'm sure there's going to be stratagems that are going to further compound that too. Um, so and whereas there's rules about not compounding pluses and minuses to hit and to wound, there's no rule against multiple penalties on a psychic test so you can stack up a couple of minus ones and make that that warp charge for psychic action to score some victory points into a six or a seven so making it far less reliable all right and then uh let's uh, uh mike you want to handle swarming masses yeah swarming masses each time this unit fights so swarming masses is um a ability that's going to turn up on lots of the like little griblies the horde units the scuttling horrors if you like uh, you can imagine the scene from Aliens where those miniguns are going non-stop. That's what this is. Swarming masses. So if each time this unit fights, models in this unit can fight if they are within engagement range of any enemy units, that's normal, or they are within two and a half inches of any enemy units. Okay, there's a little rider here saying that if they're subject to any rules that reduce um, your... Uh, ability to fight within a certain range then you just cancel out this swarming masses rule fighting within two and a half inches of enemy units dave thoughts uh that is fantastic for like you said those units of griblies those those masses of hormigons and such because only you know normally it's within an within engagement range or within half an inch of half an inch of of a model that's in engagement range now you've pushed that all the way out to a two and a half inch range of enemy units you're going to have those 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 inner that inner ring of three, four, five hormigons you might be able to get in engagement range is one thing, but when you are talking a second and even a third ring surrounding a model, you're going to be able, be able to pile on a massive number of attacks. Yeah, I've looked at this because um, I'm looking at hormigons. Um, this is about three ranks, three ranks of 25 mil bases. Uh, that's really, really good. That is really good. Yeah, because that third rank is going to have a whole lot. Obviously, it's a bigger ring, so you're going to fit a whole lot more models in there. And if you're just ringing up a space marine captain or uh, even, you know, a jet bike or something that is normally you would only get a few models in on. Now you're going to be just absolutely gang piling on somebody. So you're going to you're going to be having a prison riot on that one poor space marine captain. (laughs) Uh, All right. And then uh, the last um, army wide rule we've got is uh, death from below. During deployment, you can set up this unit underground instead of setting it up on the battlefield. If you do so, then during the reinforcement step of one of your movement phases, you can set this unit up anywhere on the battlefield that is more than nine inches away from any enemy models. It's it's the deep strike rule. It's this yeah. you know death from above or however you want to call it in, in other codexes. It's the deep strike rule. So, all right. Now, um, the 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 really cool thing, and unfortunately, it's going to be kind of hard to describe. This is one of those things you, where you're going to want to you know, buy the codex or, or at least, you know, find that a friend who's got the codex and, uh, you know, so you could read it over if you're playing against Tyranids. 
uh, is the synaptic link range um, ability, which we we talked about it last week a lot. It's the you know it, a lot of people refer to it as, and I like the term of the, it's the cell tower rule, um, and it is how you're going to bounce abilities from one synapse creature to another. Excuse me, synapse creature to another. Uh, and then, uh, so you, you know, there's a picture in, uh, one of the example pictures is there's a hive tyrant, um, and a broodlord who are within 12 inches of each other. They are connecting their abilities and then anything within 12 inches, as long as they're within 12 inches of each other, then any other unit of the, the Tyranid army that is within 12 inches of either of those models, they benefit from the synaptic, um, abilities of both the tyrant and the broodlord. So the broodlord and tyrant combine their abilities as long. So if your gene stealers, your termagants, your hormigants, whatever, are within range of one of those models, they get the abilities of both. Yeah, this is th- this is really cool. It's really cool. Um, predominantly, this is command abilities. So there'll be like a high tyrant can give you real ones to hit on a core unit, or there'll be psychic powers as well. Uh, and if you think about it, the command abilities is, is fantastic, being able to reach units across the table, provided you've got your uh, cell towers. Um, but the, the psychic powers as well, being able to use synaptic link range, is absolutely huge because you could massively extend the range that some of these powers are going for. Um, and as we've discussed, that the powers are quite good as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the psychic powers, there, there were some of them that were psychic power uh, related. You can chain your, if you may have your, uh, zone throw, you know, behind cover packed out. But if you've got that chain of, of synapse link stuff, uh, all within synaptic, uh, range of each other, they can start those zone throws can chain their psychic abilities through something else that's on the other end, a Tyranid warrior or a, a neurothrope or something else that's further down in the chain. So it's going to be passing all kind of hot potatoes around and it's going to be, again, your movement game's got to be on point guys. If you're going to play this, at the high level of the game, like I said last week, set up your models, set up some terrain, and just practice deployment and a movement phase. You know, if join the if you join the academy, if you're a member of the academy, watch the terrain uh, lesson that just dropped and f- uh, add that in. Practice your deployment, practice your first first round, and maybe a second round of movement. Just imagine it. Just imagine you've got stuff out there and move your models around. That synaptic link range is going to be one of your keys to making the most out of the efficiencies in this codex. Yeah, and uh, we actually do have uh, our members on YouTube. We've got a video explaining synapse, so the, the ignore morale. We've got a video explaining synaptic link range. And then the next thing that we're going to move on to as well, there's a video explaining the difference between all three with visual examples. That's on our members' YouTube. Um, so definitely check that out. Cool. All right. And then uh, also... Um, Related to uh, the synaptic link range is the synaptic imperatives. Um, I be- these can also be passed down through the synaptic uh, cell tower range, right? Right. This is why we did a video, Dave. Right. So synaptic imperative is actually completely independent of synaptic link range, um, and it, it's a little it's a little odd. Shall I go through synaptic imperative and the basics? Yeah, please. Okay, so each synapse unit in your army has access to a once-per-game ability. All right. Now, you can pick at the start of the battle round to choose uh, one of the synaptic imperatives, one of these abilities. Okay, so let's take the Hive Tyrants. 
uh, one, which also comes with the Swarm Lord. This is Fallback and Charge. Okay, so we choose this one, and then every single one of our Synapse models on the board has a six inch aura of Fallback and Charge, because that's what the Hive Tyrant one gives us. If we chose a different one, they're all six inches, they're auras. So you pick one of the abilities, and then you get a six inch aura of that ability on all of your Synapse creatures regardless of whether they are a Hive Tyrant or a Neurothrope or a Warrior unit. Hopefully that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, but they're not, they're not related to the synaptic link range. Um, synaptic link range is 12 inches from the bearer or the cell tower, um, but it's 6 inches in aura that triggers on all of your Synapse units once you've picked one at the start of the battle round. It is confusing because obviously they're all called very similar things. <laughs> Synaptic link range and synaptic imperative. But yeah, synaptic imperatives, Dave, what are your thoughts? Um, these are, this is a much better version of um, Marshall Katas, certainly better than Necron command protocols. You know, these are, um, it's, it's, it is a higher level of complexity than something like um, combat doctrines, you know, which is, which is basically the, the simplest but still functional version of of an army wide turn by turn rule buff that you get to give your army. So it's definitely got you're you're gonna have to. This is one of the things you're gonna want to add to your cheat sheets. So you remember all of them because you're gonna want some quick reference. Um, there is uh so there's one for hive tyrant, one for the broodlord, one for the tyranid prime, one for the turvagon, one for the neurothrope. One for the Trigon Prime, one for the Tyranid Warriors, a Malice Scepter, the Zoanthropes, and the Parasite of Mortrex. So you've got, I mean, obviously you're probably not going to fit all of these into one list. You might. I haven't actually run the points to see if you could do all of those uh, and still have the, you know, enough to fill out a battalion. But um, each one is an individual ability. Each one is going to have some, and we'll go through them, but each one in general is going to have a, a different effect on your list. And each one, um, like we said, or like Mike said, is that you're only going to be activated once per game, except for there is that. Was it a warlord trait? I think it's a psychic power, Leviathan psychic power. Okay, uh, uh, there, that's right. It was a Leviathan psychic power that allows you to dial it back, and I think there's a there's a stratagem in there too that allows you to dial it back for one unit once per game. Um, so uh, anyway, so without further ado, um, yeah, I think I think that you explained it quite well, and we'll so we'll just go into the individuals. Um, go ahead and do the first one. Uh, yeah, so this is the Hive Tyrant. So um, as I mentioned, you trigger this, and then um, while it's active and a friendly Hive Tyrant Hive Tendril unit is within six inches of this Synapse model, that unit is eligible to charge in a turn in which it fell back. Cool. Good for that clutch turn. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, fall back and charge is always, a, is always a strong ability that a lot of people underestimate. You know, you yeah, think, oh, not- go ahead. I would, sorry, I was just going to say it's not readily available anywhere else in the codex. Actually, fallback and charge. Yeah, no. Every you know, there's a few codexes that have it. You know, once some codexes don't have it at all. Um, but it is an, an ability that if you have access to it and you can and you put it, in, you build it into your list, you're going to use it eventually because you know, in probably every game you're going to use it because while it's not as overtly obvious as advance and charge. Charging something small and then falling back and charging something else you'd rather attack or that you would rather get on, you know, help you to jump forward onto an objective or something. It's a powerful, powerful ability that I think a lot of people underestimate. So, um, 
It's a good one. Uh, the next one, Broodlord, is called, uh, gives you what's called Predatory Guile. While this synaptic imperative ability is active for your army and a friendly hive tendril infantry unit is within six inches of this uh, synapse model, each time an attack targets that unit, that unit is treated as having the benefits of light cover against that attack. If that unit was already receiving the benefits of light cover against that attack, it's treated also as having the benefits of heavy cover against that attack. And that's heavy cover, something that's very rare in the game right now. So I think that's, that's really solid, especially if you're playing a melee focused army. It's, this is one of those awkward wording situations, right? Because uh, if you're already receiving the benefits of light cover, you're treated as also having the benefits of heavy cover. But if you're getting hit in combat, you don't get the benefits of light cover. Right. So yeah. you can't therefore get the benefits of heavy cover. I hope they FAQ it. Because yeah. it's really cool. And as you say, heavy cover is so rare, but also very good. Um, but again, it's just a little bit weird. But... Yes, I agree. It was de- That's definitely a, a, a wonky wording. Um, obviously the, I, I think you and I would agree and most people will agree. Most TLs will agree that rules is intended. That's supposed to be, if you're in a piece of terrain that already gives you light cover, then you get heavy cover, but you know, and of course there's other abilities that can give you light cover, but like you said, it, that only applies in the shooting phase, not in the combat phase when you want that heavy cover activating. So rules is intended. We all know what it says, but it's certainly wonky. Uh, all right. You want to do the Tyranid prime? Yeah, Tyranid Prime Guide Mind. This is really cool. So whilst this synaptic imperative ability is active for your army and a friendly hive, tile, tile, hive tendril unit, I'll keep saying it wrong, guys. A friendly hive tendril unit is within six inches of this synapse model trend going on here. Each time a model in that unit makes a ranged attack that targets the unit within 24 inches, an unmodified hit roll of six scores one additional hit. Well, wow, you've got a lot of shooting. That's big. Yeah. I always liked the idea of the Tyranid Prime, just sort of one slightly bigger, stronger Tyranid Warrior. I actually always thought of him as the, uh, and I actually had, when I um, had more Tyranids and I played him, I actually took a Tyranid Warrior model and painted it. So he had the green crisscross hash uh, uh, netting, like the, the one from uh, Aliens vs. Predator that escaped from the Predator's net. And nice. That was, my, that, was, that was how I identified my Tyranid Prime. Uh, so, all right. Uh, the Turvagon. Uh, who is not a model I don't think we've seen much on the table, but I think it's going to be one that's going to be much more viable in this codex. Uh, surging Vitality. While this synaptic imperative ability is, a, is active for your army and a friendly hive tendril unit is within six inches of this synapse model, each time that unit is selected to make a normal move or advance until the end of the phase, add two inches to the move characteristic of models in that unit. Not bad. Not bad. It's going to be a good first turn launch everything forward or second turn launch everything forward yeah that's one of those ones where your opponent says how far can this unit charge and you're like oh it's 30 inches it's my threat range and then suddenly you go bam 32 inches right although if you're playing the right way like we want you to you'll explain that you could potentially go an extra two if you triggered the imperative yeah you want to you want to disclose that if if they ask you want to disclose that ability (laughs) if they don't ask well they didn't ask the question it's not on you but if somebody asks be honest Disclose it, say it's very clear you have, you know, if I trigger an ability, they can get an extra two inches. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, Neurothrope, go for it. This is psychic augmentation. Okay, so yada yada, if, the, if it's active and a friendly hive tendril model, a hive tendril unit's within six of this synapse model, uh, you can add one to psychic test taken for that unit, add one to the 
deny the witch test taken for that unit. Uh, and each time they'd lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound, roll a d6 on a 5 plus. That wound is not lost. Okay. Not bad. I like it a lot. This is your turn one buff everything with psychic. Yes. Right? I, you know, if there's a turn where you really need your psychic to go off, you go for this. And if you know you're going to take a lot of mortal wounds in return, potentially, uh, this is also a good choice. Yeah, if you've got if you if you're gonna do a psychic uh, action, or you know you want you you're facing off against Grey Knights or Thousand Suns, and you know or some or Eldari, you know you're gonna be taking a lot of psychic attacks. You want to trigger this one quick, fast, in a hurry. Um, and also, just uh, and I want to remind everybody, um, psychic impar- or synaptic imperatives. You declare it at the start of the battle round. Doesn't matter who's going first. So even if it's your opponent's turn, you gotta. You can declare you're going to declare which synaptic imperative is operative for your uh, for your army for that or for that unit, which one you're, you're activating um, for that entire round. So don't be afraid to, to trigger a psychic augmentation, even if your opponent's the one going first, because you're you're preparing for that psychic onslaught or whatever it's going to be. All right. Trigon Prime Thrashing Demise. Um, and we'll just skip over uh, they, guys. They all say. While the synaptic imperative ability is active for your army and a friendly hive tendril unit is within six inches of the synapse model, uh, synapse model, we will not keep reading that part over because we'd like to get this done today. Uh, so for this one, uh, when it's active, each time you roll a dice for the death throws ability of a model in that unit, add three to the roll, uh, and we'll get to death throws, but basically that's their version of a vehicle exploding. Um, and each time a model is destroyed in that unit as a result of a melee attack, if that model does not have the death throws ability, roll 1d6. On a 6, the attacking model's unit suffers one mortal wound after making all of its attacks. So this gives the death throws ability to a unit if they don't have it and they're within uh, range. So, nice. It's it's not exactly fight on death, but it's it's okay. It's Yeah, it's alright, isn't it? It's cute. It's, it's alright. It's cute. It's 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 story cool and 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 it's fluffy, but it's not going to be one of the ones those ones you're going to really want to build your army around. Some of the bigger beasts do do d6 more wounds on a death throws. So oh, okay. maybe if you're packing a lot of them for one turn, it could be cool. Yeah, if you're playing, uh, if you're doing, um, you know, a, a monster heavy, large creature heavy list, um, and you're you know giving everybody uh, objective secured with your with the um, with that lurk ability, you know. Sure, doable. Uh, it's certainly, it's it's more beneficial then, but I still don't know that it's at the top list of things you're going to consider and build your list for. All right, uh, do you want to do uh, Tyranid Warriors? Yeah, this is goaded to slaughter. Um, so while they're within six of Synapse model, each time a model in that unit makes a melee attack, an unmodified hit roll of six scores one additional hit. Wow. Love it. This is on a warrior unit. That's a troop choice. It's synapse, it's troops. It's going to be in every single list, this unit. Um, and that just means you're going to get it at some point during the game, right? Yeah. And it's good. It's good on any Tyranid model. It's in combat, right? Monsters, hordes, anything. Yeah. And Exploding Sixes is always good. There is, there is never a time when Exploding Sixes is a bad thing. Um, so uh, I think that's, that is probably one of the top three strongest ones we've gotten so far. And it might be in the top three strongest in this entire list. I love it. Um, not to mention goaded to slaughter just sounds awesome. <laughs> you can just imagine the Tyranid warriors sort of mentally prodding everything else around them on to fight harder for one turn. 
Uh, all right, then there's the Maliceptor. Uh, psychic Oversight. If that unit is performing an action, it can make ranged attacks without that action failing. That unit can start to perform, and by that unit, we mean the ones that are within range of the Mouse Scepter. That unit can start to perform an action even if it advanced or fell back this turn. That's very strong. And if that unit has the Psyker keyword, performing a psychic action does not prevent it from manifesting psychic powers. Holy God in heaven. That's very strong. That's, yeah, I understand, uh, you know, this is starting to understand now why everybody's saying that Maliceptors are an auto-take in every list. It's good. It's good. Granted, I think the, the actions thing is all about your secondaries. There are a few actions inherent in the data sheets as well. And of course, the one that we're mainly on about, um, the Maliceptor himself or itself, uh, has a psychic action, uh, which we can reach later. But that means that they could do the psychic action and they, they cast two naturally, so they can still cast after the psychic action um, for that whole turn. Being able to fall back and do an action, massive, if you can ever get that, and of course advance, especially if you've got something like Retrieve Nachman, you need to get into quarters. I really like this ability. Yeah. This is, this is not something I see people triggering turn one, turn two. This is something you're going to save and sit on until turn three, turn four, when, like you said, you want to do a Retrieve Nachman and you want to have a unit that's not quite or almost or just barely about to get into the right um, table quarter to get that last Nachman data um, and uh, uh, have them fall back out of combat, fall back into your opponent's you know, table quarter in that, in that back corner that you're trying to get and have them do their R&D. That's going to be very strong. Uh, or doing the advance and just have them just charge across the field early to get that that one that you know is going to be hard to get. It's going to be real strong. It's going to really help with scoring. Yep. And as you said, Dave, earlier, movement's critical here because, of course, they're only going to be able to do the action whilst they're within six inches of a synapse creature. So you could advance, say, a unit of gargoyles up, but you still need a synapse model to be within six of them when they try and do the action. Yeah. So, yeah, movement is huge here. Yeah, you're going to you're going to trigger this ability at the start of the battle round and then you're going to have to make sure that you know, you're you're charging that squad of termagants or whatever or tyrannid warriors in so that they can do that action or fall back out of combat to do that action, but they still have to be within 6 inches of the maliceptor too. So you're going to have to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row and you planned ahead for this. So, tyrannids are going to be very strong, but they are definitely not amateur hour with on codex difficulty level either. Uh, all right, what do you do, Zoanthropes? Zoanthropes, this is probably the one that's drawn the most attention. Um, I would say the most powerful for one turn uh, in terms of impact. Warp shielding, um, obviously within six inches of a synapse model. Monster models in that unit have a four plus invulnerable save. Models excluding monster models in that unit have a five plus invulnerable save. Wow. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, your um your warriors, Tyranid Warriors, or any of your little griblies have a five up invulnerable save. Any of your Khan effects uh have a four up invun, your uh Turan effects, your Turvigon suddenly have four up invuns. Um and sure it's for one turn. Obviously there is the Leviathan psych power as well. Um sure it's for one turn, uh, one battle round rather, um, but that is immensely powerful. Yep. Hashtag great, uh, make Molochs great again. Uh, and then, all right. And then the last one, 
is oh and that oh and also that's going to be even more powerful if you're giving your monster models obsec for you know for the game and you're you're just trying to steal off an objective and you don't want to get shot off the table that's going to add in that extra bit of durability too i just thought of so yeah that's that's going to be really powerful all right last one parasite of mortrex has swift onslaught um each time a model uh that's within six inch range of this creature of this model every time it makes a pile in or consolidation move it can move up to an additional three inches very strong yeah especially especially when compact when 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 compiled with some of the uh with with the um with the right hive fleet and you're now you're yeah piling in consolidating nine inches um i mean so for example um i, I mean i've written a hydra list um the whole list is in, in our members youtube etc etc um but there is a power a parasite the second part of the hive fleet is an extra three on your consolidate uh unit hormigants inherently and we'll reach them later get plus three on their piling so suddenly you combine all of that and a hormigant unit is piling in nine inches and then consolidating nine inches as well so if you've already killed the thing that they charged whatever they're just going to move 18 inches towards the closest enemy models yep that's nuts. That is insane. That is absolutely insane. It, yeah, very strong. It's good stuff. Uh, all right. So those are the, that's the, the last of the, the synaptic imperative abilities. Um, and then we will start going on to the data sheets. Um, guys, we're not going to go through every single data sheet because we're already 38 minutes in. We don't have time for all that. So um, we're just going to hit one or two highlights from each battlefield role, the, the ones that Mike and I think are, are really worth um, an extra look. And then um, by all means, guys, you know, if, if all this content is, if you aren't already a tyranny player and you, this stuff interests you or you want to do a little extra research, go out and get a copy of the Codex. It's, it's worth the read. So, uh, all right, HQ, you want to do your first one? Uh, yeah, so for me, HQ, this is, I'm going for this because it's a bit of a different one, right? And I really like this lady. The Turvigon. Okay. I really like the Turvigon. Uh, it's the probably the toughest to kill uh, HQ choice. 17 wounds, toughness 8, 2 plus save. Uh, it's got the option to do some really good combat in there with sweep attacks, with uh, its talons. For me, the best thing is what it can do for you in terms of some of the hordes you might run along. So it can spawn Termigants. Uh, that gives you two options. So you can return 2d6 termigants to a currently living unit on the table within six inches in the command phase. Now, command phase abilities have the potential to turn objectives to your favor. And I really like this how this plays into that. If you've got a termigant unit that's cut down to a couple of guys next to your termigant, suddenly, bam, 2d6, average seven, seven come back, you take an objective back, something like that. You hear, you hear that sound, Mike? That's that's the sound of of Necron warrior hearts breaking. <laughs> yeah, you get you get D three warriors back with your cryptic. I'm just going to bring two D six back. Yeah, with the big mama. Her other one, and this is really cool. Uh, if you don't do that, the one I've just mentioned, then you can set up a new termagant unit um, equipped with flesh borers of ten models. Not within engagement range of enemy units, but wholly within six inches of this model, and it doesn't cost reinforcement points. Okay, you need a cheeky retrieve Nachman data in the last turn of the game. 
bam, you set them up, and then they can move. Okay, amazing. You you need some more models on an objective. Perfect. You got these guys. I really like this lady. Um, she does have some other abilities, uh, so she can uh, give plus one to hit to a turbulent unit uh, with a command phase ability, and she can't be shot if there's a fifteen or more uh, person turbulent unit uh, within an inch and closer to the enemy models of her. Uh, yeah, I really like her. Yeah, and that and that birthing uh, uh, ability, for lack of a better term, that birthing ability happens in the command phase. So, like you said, you you drop them, you 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 spit out. She spits out a whole bunch of extra termagants, uh, or creates a new squad of ten termagants uh, in the command phase, and now they have free reign to move and shoot and do what they're gonna do. And if hey, put her, put them right near that malice scepter. Hey, guess what? We get to uh, advance and still do an action. Yep. And she's a psyker and synapse as well. So right, and she's got her her own synaptic ability, which we won't, which we just talked about. So very strong. And T eight seventeen wounds, two up armor save. She's going to be a pain to shift. To be a real pain to shift. Um, I can I can already see. Uh, and she does not have a built in invuln, um, but stick her next to a zoanthrope and trigger your warp shielding. The great thing about synaptic imperatives, Dave, is that you just choose to trigger the synaptic imperative, and because she's synapse, she gives that four up invent to herself. I thought it was wait. I thought the synaptic imperatives only worked on just the one unit that was doing it. No. So what you do is you choose the synaptic imperative for the uh, zoanthropes. So you say, right, this battle round, I'm going for warp shielding, and then every single one of your synapse units, not just the zoanthropes, light up and have a six inch aura. Where monsters get a four up in one and the five up in the other guys. And you had said that, and then when we we're going through them, every single one of them said within six inches of this synapse model. And so I was thinking it meant that model was triggering the ability. I, I don't know why my brain shifted gears, but uh, yeah, I just you, yeah, you're right because it says any it's, it's any synapse model in the army, every synapse model in the army gets it. So yeah, even better, even better. Whew. All right, uh, my favorite because I just love the 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 Starship Troopers Dune Sandworm idea of something coming up out of the ground. Uh, I got to go with the Trigon Prime. Love it. It's such a it's a cool model. I've always loved the model. Um, the fact that it's an HQ choice is great. Uh, T7, 14 wounds, a movement of 10, weapons and ballistics of three up to start. Obviously, it brackets 12 attacks to start. Three up, uh, base armor save. Uh, it gets all the um, the fun uh, add-ons, adrenal glands, toxin sacks, those sorts of things. Um, it, it's uh, base attacks, uh, melee weapons are you know, the toxin spike and the trigon scything talons are all user strength, so strength seven. Um, it does have the bioelectric pulse attack. It's a ranged attack of 12 inches, assault eight, strength five, AP negative two, one damage. Nice little um, something to, to whittle a couple wounds off of, off of a squad or something. but. Of course, it has death from below. Love it. So it's deep striking. This big model going to deep strike. It's got it's a synapse creatures. It's got a synapse imperative that we just talked about. It's got shadow on the warp. Uh, it has serpentine coils. So each time a melee attack is made against this unit, subtract one from that attack's hit roll. So get this thing into melee and people are having a hard time hitting it. It does have death rows uh, like we talked about. And on a six plus when it dies, if you roll on a six plus, um, the closest enemy unit within six inches suffers D3 mortal wounds, so it explodes like a vehicle. 
And then it has bio impulses. In your command phase, select one friendly high fleet core unit within synaptic link range of this model that has not already been selected for this ability this turn. Until the start of your next command phase, add one to advance rolls and add one to charge rolls made for that unit. Love it. Command phase, I declare you. Go forth, advance, charge, and wreak havoc. Yeah, this guy's great. Real strong. Yeah. He's awesome. And all the buffs you can give him, like you can give him adrenal glands to buff him up to strength eight if you really want to. Um, he's synapse, so you could trigger the zoanthrope thing and he could have a four pinvon generating from himself. Uh, yep. Yeah, really like him. Yeah. Oh, and I skipped over the, I forgot it has the prehensile pincer tail. So each time it's selected to fight when resolving its attacks, you can reroll one hit roll or one wound roll too, just in case it already wasn't enough of a, a badass unit in a, yeah. in a sexy package. And, so, and you can stick warlord traits and relics on these guys that we've just mentioned. Yeah, these are all HQ choices. So these are all, char- you know, they've got the, uh, um, he's got, they've, they've, these have all got the character keyword. So, and it's got the monster keyword. So love it. Uh, you got any other? Uh, HQ choices you want to touch on real quick? Um, I mean, the Hive Tyrants are great. I think the Swarm Lords, um, pretty good. Gives out double obsec. Um, so if he gives out two core units, they gain objectives secured, which means they can control objectives over people that don't have objectives secured. And if they've already got that rule, uh, then they count as an extra model for controlling objectives. I like that. Um, he's great in combat. And he gives out like a chapter master reroll, so you give a core unit reroll all hit rolls. Very cool, very cool. Um, I do like the uh, the fact that the uh, I, you know, I won't go the, do the whole uh, data sheet, but I got to give an honorable mention to the Tyranid Prime. Um, you know, it's he, he's he's like he's always been. He's the the Tyranid Warrior on steroids, um, and he's got uh, but he's got the Alpha Warrior ability. In your command phase, select one friendly high fleet core unit within synaptic link range of this model. Until the start of the next command phase, each time a model that unit makes an attack, reroll a wound roll of one. So he's he's your lieutenant, but he's your Phobos lieutenant, and you don't have to worry about pan points for for radios. Uh, he's going to just send send through that synaptic link chain. He can send reroll ones to wound uh, to to pick a unit. So very strong, nice yeah, little. Awesome. And he's and he's you know he's he's one of the lowest cost HQ units. So he's not going to be your your first guy you pick or even your second, but if you got some points left and you still got an HQ slot on your battalion, you're going to throw them in there and start giving out reroll ones to wound. Real good. Except against Valor's heart, as I can just hear my wife's voice in my ear. <laughs> Not against Valor's heart. Yes, honey, I know. <laughs> All right. Um, H, uh, troops choices. Um, it, it's, you know, there's only four um it, troops choices but they're the four that have always well actually they're not always haven't always been there there's the three that have always been there which is tyranid warriors termagants and hormigons but in a in a uh rousing and rather surprising shift gargoyles who have always been a fast attack choice are now a troops choice mm. uh and they are absolutely worth um a look they are gonna be i think at a lot of lists because they've got um they can uh deep strike um i do believe because they've got a they well can actually they can't they can't no, no they actually can't very weird i was just assuming that they could because they had wings and they have before but they can't yeah we've got death from below but the nids don't do death from above right 
So no, so you won't be deep striking your gargoyles, but your gargoyles do have a 12 inch movement and you're getting them in squads of 10 to 20. So you've got huge flocks of them flying across the field. Um, they do have the swarming masses rule. Um, and they, they, this is one of those units um, like the Termagants and the Hormagants, which uh, Michael touched on in a second, that have the endless multitude keyword. I know we had mentioned it before, and they've got core. So this is going to be one of those units that's going to be worth um, uh, you know, putting in for, for uh, cheap mobility units for um, engage, uh, engage points or for retrieve Nackmund or soon-to-be-retrieved Nephilim uh, data, I assume. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. So anyway, I, I still think uh, Deep Striker, no, I think Gargoyles are still going to be worth absolutely a look. Um, Mike, what's your, what's your top uh, troops pick here? I mean, I love Hormigans. It's going to have to be Tyranid Warriors. Um, they're, just, they're just outstanding. Uh, you know, Toughness 5 now, 3 wounds each, 4 up save. Uh, they're great for combat. Their shooting's not half bad anymore. Uh, the biggest kicker really is that their synapse as well and their synaptic imperative is absolutely killer. Exploding sixes in melee. Yeah. Um, I do also want to make an honourable mention. I do believe gene sealers used to be a troop's choice. Um, yeah. And I think ripper swarms as well, but those are no longer in the troops section. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, and um, just to mention with the Tyranid Warriors, they have the warrior spawning ability, so... In case you did get go hog wild on your HQ choices and you couldn't fit a Tyranid Prime in your in your HQ choices, um, if you um, if your army's Battleforged, then for each detachment that includes any high fleet Tyranid warriors, one Tyranid Prime model can be included in that detachment without taking up a battlefield roll slot. So you can still uh, squeeze in a Tyranid Prime as long as you've got at least one squad of warriors in there. So real strong. Yep. They're, 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 and, and obviously they've got the synapse and the core and high fleet and they've got all the right keywords. So they are going to be, and we said, you know, we talked about, they have one of the best imperatives. So yeah, they're awesome. And then uh, just to, just so people are aware, Termagants are still the horde of shooters. Hormagants are still the horde of chargers. Hormagants have a, a, a move of 10 inches. They're still T3, one wound, five up armor save, nothing super. They're not going to be surviving a whole lot, but, uh, they do have the the swarming masses rule. They've got the endless multitude keyword, and they have bounding leap. So each time they make a pile in move, like Mike said before, they can pile in. They can move an additional three inches in their um, uh, in their pile in. So hormigons are going to be something that is you're definitely going to see them in hydra lists. I think they've they've got three attacks each now, which is also absolutely worth a mention. Yeah, yeah, that's As, crazy. Yeah, and with that swarming masses rule that we talked about before, three attacks each. If you're piling in 12, 15 guys, you know, around the base of a single, um, a single enemy model, you're going to be putting in a lot of attacks. Yeah. All right, um, elites. What's your top pick for elites? Well, this section is absolutely packed with choices. Um, it's a difficult decision. I think I'm going to go with. An infamous model. I know the Maliceptor's big, and we can talk about that certainly. Uh, but my top pick is Death Leaper. Yep. So this guy is the named Lictor character. Uh, so he he moves ten. He hits on twos in combat. Uh, toughness five, strength seven, seven wounds, seven attacks. Uh, he's AP three damage two in combat. He's got superior chameleonic skin. 
So minus one to hit. Cool. Against shooting or combat. If he's receiving the benefits of cover, can't be selected as a target of a ranged attack if they're more than 12 inches away. Very nice. And he has a four plus invulnerable save as well. Now he's got a bunch of other rules. It just keeps going. Yeah. It's out there. So that's an aura ability. You can't, enemy units can't start actions within six inches of him. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, inhuman swiftness. So he's got fight first if he's in engagement range. And then this other one, this is the kicker. Fear of the unseen. While an enemy unit is within engagement range of this model, that unit cannot be selected for stratagems used by your opponent. And that unit cannot be affected by stratagems used by your opponent when that unit is selected to shoot or fight. Let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. I'm sorry. You wanted to transhuman? You can't. Oh, I've surrounded you and you wanted to emergency breakout? Oh, you can't. I've surrounded a vehicle, maybe, and you wanted to emergency disembark so you could get out six. Sorry. Can't do that anymore. Auto pass morale? No, 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 no. Yep. There's a big list yeah. of things this guy turns off. A lot of lists. Oh, you wanted to turn your, your guns into pistols for a turn and have him have them shoot him point blank? Nope, not gonna do that either. A lot of that that one unit is just going to be deeply, deeply at risk. You are not gonna be able to do to to have that last minute throw yeah. of hope to to try to save them on the dice or something. The biggest thing for him, I think, is it, he stops you from using uh, counter-offensive, the combat interrupt. Yeah. Uh, the nids in the book don't really have a fight's last option. Um, so he can let you basically do a fight's last, uh, unless your opponent, of course, has fights first. His last rule uh, is that he can basically deep strike, um, but it's wholly within six inches of any battlefield edge or any terrain feature and more than nine from enemy models. He can set up more than six for enemy models um, as part of this within the terrain feature, uh, provided he's set up wholly within your deployment zone. Uh, and if he does come on using this rule, he can reroll his charges. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, he's, he is going to be... Um, and he's a character, so look out, sir. You're not... Yep. Yep. So, and you can stick Warlord traits on him, relics, whatever you want. So, because yep. he's a character. So yeah, he is going to be... Well, he is a named character. Oh, that's true. He, he is a named character. So, yeah. um, his fixed wall of trait is very good. It's the alien cunning we spoke about last week. Right. So objective secured. Um, but yes, his wall of trait is very good as well. Still very strong. Uh, all right. Uh, Lictors, obviously, by extension, are also still very good. Uh, I got to um, gotta go give a shout out to my, uh, my boy, the Harrow Specs. I just love the model. Um, it's not the best model in this list because like Mike said, this is the elites section is jam packed with choices. There's three, four, five, six, seven pages of elites. Um, some of them are only one per page, some are two per page, but you guys get the idea. Um, so, but the Harrow specs, very tough. Uh, T8, 15 wounds, five attacks, movement of eight. Uh, not the fastest, but not the slowest. Obviously, he's a monster. He's got the horned chitin and acid blood keywords, which we'll get to when we get to the stratagems. Um, he has his uh, grasping tongue is now a 12-inch attack. 
Um, his shoveling claws are times two strength, meaning his strength 14 or his strength seven becomes a strength 14, doing minus three AP and D3 plus three damage. Very strong. Um, and then he's also got his ravenous maw. Each time an attack is made with this weapon, make three hit rolls instead of one. So your five attacks turn into 15. Um, real strong. Um, he's got a couple of special abilities rapacious hunger. Uh, each time an enemy model is destroyed as a result of an attack by this model, this model regains one lost wound. So he's super healing every time he kills something. And a Grizzly Spectacle, while it's an aura ability, while an enemy unit is within six inches, this model subtract two from the leadership characteristic of models in that unit. Not the, you know, leadership modifications, okay. Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of an, it's an, uh, it's an also ran, I think. Uh, and then he's also got the uh, Death Throws, you know, on a six up, he'll do uh, D3 mortal wounds when he dies to anything within six inches. So um, it's not the the strongest of these elite choices, but I still think it's um, it's going to be worth a look. It, he can do a ridiculous amount of damage potentially. So I think he's I think he's an unspoken sort of yeah uh, hero almost of the elite slot. You know, um, and the minus two leadership, like he does have potentially fifteen attacks. You know, you could kill a bunch of Marines, and then suddenly that leadership tips them over the edge. Um, yeah. It's a nice thing to have. 15 attacks is great. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're getting into, like, an Intercessor squad or, um, you know, a squad of Aspect Warriors or something like that. Yeah. And I love that his tongue ignores Lookout, sir. <laughs> I did sk- I missed over that. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. The fact <laughs> that his tongue, his 12-inch grasping tongue, which... Strength six, AP negative three, D, you know, three, three flat damage is nothing to, to, to sneeze at. It's only an assault one, but yeah, like you said, it ignores lookout, sir. So that basically makes his 12 inch grasping tongue the best sniper weapon in the game. So make that, uh, make that of it what you will. Uh, all right, let's, let's, uh, before we leave the elite slot, we got to talk about the Maliceptor because everybody's talking about it. The Reddit is imploding over the Maliceptor and the number of psychic abilities. So um, go, go for it, Mike, and you, you give him the breakdown. Okay, so this guy, move eight, that's right. Strength seven, that's right. Toughness eight, well, that's pretty good. 15 wounds, again, pretty good. Three attacks, that's okay. Three up save, again, that's okay. All right, so he's got a sweep attack, AP3 damage 2, not bad, and then he's got his normal attacks, which are 2d3 damage, AP4. Okay, but this guy comes in with his special rules. Yeah. Synapse, Shadow in the Warp, so obviously he's Synapse, uh, which is fantastic. He can perform an action called Encephalic Diffusion. In your psychic phase, this psychic can attempt to form a psychic action. If completed, they gain the following ability. Uh, diffusion field aura while a friendly high fleet unit is within six of this psyker each time a ranged attack is made against that unit subtract one from the strength characteristic of that attack so we'll look at that for a moment this guy's toughness eight there's a fair bit of toughness eight in the book how many strength nine weapons are people packing um not, not a lot these days suddenly your strength eight now is strength seven you're wounding it on fives uh that is already incredibly powerful Yep. Your heavy bolters are now wounding him on sixes. Yeah. It's a problem. Yep. Uh, okay, so Psychic Barrier. He's got a four-up invun. He doesn't even care about the Zoanthrope synaptic imperative. He already has a four-up invun on a toughness eight, 15 wound, three-up save body. 
Very strong. Very strong. And it does it in the, this is probably the most talked about ability uh, in this book, and it's called Psychic Overload. Each time this model successfully manifests a psychic power or completes a psychic action, if the result of the test was seven or more, then after resolving the power, closest enemy unit within 12 inches suffers a number of mortal wounds shown in the table below. So that's the closest enemy unit within 12. No line of sight required. Ouch. So the number of mortal wounds is based on how many wounds this model has left. If it's got eight or more left, then they suffer three mortal wounds. Five to seven, two mortal wounds, and one to four, one mortal wound. It casts two powers, denies one. Okay. So it casts a power, let's say. Does it on a seven. Let's say it does smite. Cast it on a seven, closest enemy unit within 12, takes three more wounds, and then the smite on top, so that's D3. If you get lucky with some of the other buffs available in the book, you could super smite it uh, and get potentially D6. But already we're looking at D3 plus three here. You give this guy Psychic Scream, uh, which we talked about last time. It's basically another smite. That's D3 more wounds. And then if you do it on a seven, another flat three more wounds. Okay, doesn't end there. We could spend a CP, we'll come to the stratagems later, to do an extra power. All right. And that could be a mortal wound power, or it could just be the psychic action he does. And then on a seven there, he does a further three mortal wounds, the closest enemy unit within 12. So we've done nine plus 2d3 mortal wounds in one turn with this guy. Yeah, it's obnoxious. That's really obnoxious. And even if you're, if you're using that psychic overload, you could be standing in the middle of the table and smiting at something else, and some and the and the closest enemy model within that's not within line of sight, just behind a wall or something. That one's racking up mortal wounds too. So you you can really spread the love that way too. So yeah, there's a there's a reason that people are 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 uh, all abuzz about the malice scepter and at T eight and fifteen wounds. Um, yeah, you can you can shoot it from across the table, but you're going to be chipping at it for a minute. Yeah, he's a, he's a potential problem child of the book, this guy. Yeah. Yep. Very strong. All right. Uh, moving along from, uh, you know, we'll, we'll skip over uh, Venomthropes. They still have their, their cool uh, uh, Toxic Miasma Cloud. Dig that. Zonethropes are still out there warp blasting things. Gene Stealers are still basically the, the melee beasts that they've always been. Although they're not quite as strong as they were. I, I think they, they took a little bit of a hit, but. Yeah, there's no reroll wounds anymore. Yeah. They they did though gain a uh, forward deploy ability, uh, which is uh, alone in the codex essentially, apart from the Broodlord. Yeah, uh, which is quite quite nice. Yeah, so they can oh and and if you've got them, um if you've got a squad of gene stealers, then you can have a broodlord that, that doesn't take a battlefield roll slot either. So that's a nice little bonus. Um all right, moving on to fast attack. We've got Raveners, we've got Ripper Swarms, we've got the Parasite of Mortrex and the Moloch, uh, and the Trigon, which are all somehow in fast attack as a heavy support. Um, and then you've got a couple of different kinds of spores. So uh, what's your top pick? Uh, it's got to be the Parasite. Yeah. I have a word to say about the Moloch as well, but the, the Parasite, uh, awesome for me. I think one of the key things is it's a character model with the Synapse ability. So it benefits from Lookout, sir, and it keeps your synapse bubbles going. The raw profile isn't particularly impressive itself. Uh, he does have a 16-inch move, which is a whopping move, 
for a synapse creature. Um, toughness five, six wounds, six attacks. Uh, he's only AP two in combat, uh, one damage. He does have the ability to um, face hug people. So he gets one attack, and if it wounds, then he's face hugged someone, and they become uh, parasitically infected or infected with parasites, which means that uh, they take a mortal wound, and then at the start of your opponent's command phase, enemy units that are infected roll a d6. On a 1 to 3, they suffer d3 mortal wounds, but they're no longer infected. You could say maybe they've cut the parasite out or something gross like that. Yeah. Um, and then on a 4 to 6, they suffer d3 mortal wounds, but they're still infected with parasites. Okay, here's the, here's the kicker. We can imagine uh, lying on the table in the first movie of the series. Yep. If a unit suffers two or more mortal wounds as a result of this ability, this phase set up a new friendly Hive Fleet Ripper Swarms unit on the table within three inches of that unit and not within engagement range of any enemy units. The Ripper Swarm unit contains one model, and if you are playing a game that uses a points limit, does not cost reinforcement points. Yep. It's cool. Yeah, it is cool. It pops out, uh, and you get rippers potentially in the mortal wounds. However, if you're infected with parasites, you lose ob- objective secured. That's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, is losing objective secured if you're infected. Um, and the guy's not easy to kill either because he's minus one to hit, um, and you cannot reroll hits against him. Uh, and he's got deep strike as well. Yeah, very strong. Um, he he's his his special rules are very cool. The parasitic infection thing and the it itches rule taken away at obsec. Those are all very cool. Um, oh, and he does have death from above. So. Uh, you know, him deep striking is is cool, but I think the biggest thing is going to be that movement 16. He's going to be able to flip around just in case you do find that, oh, I, I've got a little bit of a a break, a break in my uh, synapse chain. Fly him over real quick, 16 inches, have him haul ass across the table, and suddenly you've shored up that that uh, deficiency. So, yeah, he's 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 just a very... And, and the model's actually smaller than I thought. I was expecting him to be on a 40 mil base or something bigger, but... Uh, I think it's a. It might be a forty mil, but it might might be thirty two. But I was expecting him to be a a bigger like hive tyrant size, or at least tyrant, you know, larger than a tyrant warrior size model. He's not. Yeah, he's, likewise. He he's actually slightly small. He's basically space marine captain with wings sized. So yeah. Um. So yeah, it's, it's a it, it is a small, unassuming model compared to everything else that's that's going to be on the table. Uh. All right. Got to talk about my boy the Moloch. Love it. Um. 10-inch move, three up, uh, three plus weapons of ballistics, strength seven, T7, 14 wounds, 16 attacks. Love it. Leadership seven, three up save. Um, scything talons are, you know, user strength, minus one, damage one though. So 16 attacks when you're only doing one damage is fine. It's okay. Um, in, in light of armor of contempt, the minus on AP is somewhat disappointing. Um, and then he's got the adrenal glands, biostatic rattle, access to toxin sacs, access to prehensile pincer tail. Death from a below, of course. And here's the one that I dig. Terror from the deep. In your command phase, if any models from your army are underground, you can select one of those models and select one point on the battlefield and place a terror from the deep marker on that point. If you do so, that model cannot be set up using its death from below ability this turn. And at the start of the reinforcement step of your next turns movement phase roll 1d6 for each enemy unit within six inches of the center of that marker 
adding one if the unit being rolled for contains between six and 10 models, and adding two if the unit being rolled for contains 11 or more models. On a three to six, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. On a seven plus, that unit suffers D3 plus three mortal wounds. Then set the selected Moloch up anywhere on the battlefield. Basically, this turns the Moloch into an orbital strike, and it doesn't cost you three CP. It, it is, having, having experimented a little bit with, with the orbital strike um, stratagem, it's, it's overcosted, but it does, it can scare people off of an objective for a turn. If somebody's camping a bunch of units on an objective, you put that, in, and it says in your command phase, so you could do this first turn. He's in reserves. First turn, you, you drop that marker in the middle of an objective um, anywhere on the table, and then they have to sort of respect that you're going to have that Moloch come up and do those mortal wounds. So now I think you have to be careful with, because um, you're going to do all your mortal wounds before you set up the model. So you have to be careful that you can't, um, if you don't, you can do this ability, pop off all these mortal wounds, but then if you can't deploy the Moloch um, within an engagement range. Um, yeah, there are, there are dangers with where you can put it, but. Yeah, but it, well, it actually says if that, it, it says if that model, if the Moloch model is set up within nine inches of any enemy models until the end of the turn, it cannot charge. So you're not worrying about, uh, I stopped reading one sentence too soon. Um, so you're not worried about deep striking. So you're deep striking him within nine inches too. So you can put him up anywhere on the table too. With that, yeah, it just, with that just has to be within twelve of the center of that marker. Yeah, so you are you 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 just can't charge them. But hey, that's still solid, very solid. Right. Uh, and then he's got the serpentine coils. He's minus one to be hit in melee. Um, he's got distensible jaws. So um, uh, an enemy unit, excluding vehicle units, within engagement range. Um, uh, at this, whenever this unit is selected to fight. Um, pick one unit within an engagement range, roll a D6. On a two to five, the enemy unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. On a six, they suffer three mortal wounds. If any models are destroyed as a result of those mortal wounds, till the end of the turn, that enemy unit counts as being below half strength for the purpose of combat attrition tests. Nice L little little bonus there. Um, and then he has, of course, death throws doing the D3 mortal wounds on anything within six inches if he explodes. So, um, again, Moloch. I think has some potential, has some play. I don't know that you're going to play with two or three of them, but having one just to have that deep strike ability with the with the uh, orbital strike, basically pumping out mortal wounds on units that are camping on a point. I think it's it's got some play. I think it's going to be underestimated. I've got a cool trick you can do with this guy. Go for it. Right. So let's say you take the lurk biomorphology. Um, so the second part of your trait, and this guy now becomes objective secured and count as five models. You can unstoppable, unstoppably, pretty much take an objective off your opponent in your turn, right? Yeah. Because you put the marker down on their objective, they can either leave a bunch of units on there or take them off, and depending how many are objectives secured, of course. And this guy just pops up. They can't stop him, can't screen him out, pops up, takes the objective. Yeah. I think that alone potentially you squeeze one in the list, um, but there are a lot of good options here. Yeah. A lot of good options. All right, moving on to heavy support. Um, we'll, we'll blast over mucolid spores and spore mines. Uh, those, those are the ones that, that Mike and I talked about last week that have the living artillery keyword. They do not have the high fleet keyword. Um, and, then, uh, the, and then heavy support, we've got exocrines, biovores, 
the ubiquitous Carnifexes, Screamer Killers, and Thornbacks, which are now separate uh, data sheets, like they were in the last. Uh, and then Hiveguard, and then the Tyrannifex, and the Tyrannocyte. You and I can have the conversation that we had yesterday yeah. on text in a minute. But, <laughs> uh, what's what's your top pick for the uh, uh, for heavy support? Well, I'm going to go back to the simple pleasures of melee combat, and I'm going to pick the Screamer Killer. So that's my favorite of the Carnifex variants. Right. It's just built for combat. So this guy moves 10 inches. Okay. Uh, strength 6. So okay. Hits on 3s in combat. Basic skill 4 plus. Toughness 7. 9 wounds. 10 attacks. 2 plus save. All right. It's got basically a 1 damage assault D6 blast plasma gun. Yep. Not bad. And then it's Screamer Killer Talons are Strength User, so Strength 6, AP 3, Damage 3. Already we're looking at 10 Strength 6, AP 3, Damage 3 attacks. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, that's Um, that's a Space Ring Killer. I mean, and 3 damage is such a sweet spot right now, so even if you've got damage mitigation, even if you're playing into something like Death Guard, you're still going to be cleaning out, cleaning house. Yeah, and it doesn't stop there, Dave. This guy is minus one damage. Of course. Cool. Keep him alive a bit longer. Each time, they, if they charged or heroically intervened, they get plus one attack for some reason. So, 11 attacks. Sure. Why not? Yeah, well, why not? Uh, I really like this one. So, terrifying. Each time this model destroys a model in the enemy unit until the end of the turn, subtract one from the leadership characteristic of models in that enemy unit to a maximum of minus four. So, you could get like a horde unit to minus four almost instantly with just this guy, nice. which instantly makes morale a problem Yeah, at minus four. Um, and then the rest of it is uh, monstrous brood. So all of the Carnifex variants, uh, you can buy them in units one to three, but when you set them up on the board, they separate into uh, units of one. And then death rows uh, for a mortal wound within three inches on the closest enemy unit. Nice. It is, it is definitely the the um i think i agree with you i think it's the best of the three um carnifex variants it's i mean just the 10 attacks 11 on the charge with just doing that flat three ap negative three that's that's a space ring killer right there especially with the armor of contempt meta we're we're walking into now yeah very and nice. imagine having having a unit warriors nearby to give it exploding sixes in combat yeah like that's not unreasonable on 11 attacks no not at all and with strength six oh um You've got a Tyranid Prime somewhere on the table. I'm just gonna chain chain on through and give it my uh reroll ones to hit. Or I'm sorry, reroll ones to wound. Yeah. Nice. You could even give it uh adrenal glands for plus one strength and move. Yeah. So strength seven, move eleven. Um I really like this other upgrade, uh Sporsis. Uh it gets light cover against all range attacks. It's already got a two up save, so it basically gets armor of contempt in a way. Yeah. Um it's for this a terminator. upgrade. Yeah. Yep. Solid. All right. Uh, for my pick from heavy support, the Tyran effects. It is, it is the Godzilla almost of, uh, uh, of, uh, it's certainly a Kaiju model of the Tyranids. Um, nine inch move. So not as fast as, as some others, but, uh, three plus, uh, weapons and ballistics strength seven. It's another T eight model, 17 wounds. It's only got four attacks, uh, leadership seven and a two up save. This is the part that I like. Acid spray. It's an 18 inch 
heavy D6 plus six shots, strength six, AP negative three, damage two, and each time an attack's made with this weapon, that attack automatically hits the target. D6 plus six, flamer, strength six, neg three. Woo! That's going to put the hurt on somebody. It's going to put some serious hurt on. And then there's more. Uh, it also has, because uh, it starts with a flesh borer hive, you can actually, which is a 24 inch assault 30 um, uh, bolt rifle, heavy bolt rifle, five strength, five AP one damage one. Meh. I would definitely upgrade to the acid spray if it was me. Um, although there is also an argument to be made for swapping out that flesh borer hive for the rupture cannon, 48 inch range, heavy three strength, 14 AP negative four damage D six plus four four so solid very solid um yeah i like it that you can do a, you can do a whole lot with that it also has the stinger salvos which is another um assault eight strength five neg one damage one shooter and it's got the powerful limbs um user strength ap negative one damage two for melee attacks um and it's got death rows this is one of those ones you mentioned that um if it explodes um it does d6 mortal wounds to everything within six so it's a it is a it is a serious heavy ranged tank model that you can park somewhere on the field and at T T8 and 17 wounds and a two up save people are going to be taking a minute. I mean even you know a a storm a, a storm surge or um something similarly rail cannon esque is going to take several shots to take this thing down. And if you've given it that that acid spray it doesn't matter if you've bracketed him a little bit he's still hitting you with all those shots automatically so yep. i like it but even if you're in engagement range yeah yeah because that very dangerous none position. of those has yeah that doesn't have blast so you're just gonna hose somebody down like that poor guy in starship troopers that gets his arm melted off <laughs> so all right and then we gotta just real quick mention uh there was a there was sort of a meme list that was at a tournament last weekend um somebody came out with something like nine tyrannocytes on the table and there was a you and I and, and a couple of other guys in our in our group chat were talking about this yesterday. There is a question that which battlefield role is this? Because um, the Tyrannocyte, as many of you will recall, is a transport. It's basically a Tyranid drop pod. It, uh, it still has the transport rule. It can transport 20 high fleet infantry models. Um, each model of the wounds characteristic of more than one takes up the space of three models. So you can't don't go too crazy packing in. Tyranid Warriors, but, uh, or you can put a high fleet monster model in there if it has a wounds characteristic of 16 or less. So no Tyrann effects drop pod for me. But uh, the Tyrannus, but it, it is also a fairly strong model in that it's T7, 15 wounds, um, and it's drop pod. And it's also got the aerial seating rule during deployment. This unit can be set up high in the skies. Um, if it, you know, it comes down in the reinforcements phase, the transport model can be set up in the reinforcement step, second or third of the first, second or third movement phase. So it has the drop pod rule. Uh, it really is a drop pod in all, for all intents and purposes. Um, regardless of any mission rules, it must be set up within you know more than nine inches away from any enemy models. After transport set up on the battlefield, no units can embark within it, and it has the death rows. The the issue here is, of course. It's T7, it's 15 wounds, so it's fairly resilient. Um, and you can put some guns on it. You can give it, it starts with five death spitters. Um, you can swap those out for five venom cannons or five barbed stranglers. And so it just becomes, you, you can potentially 
you're putting down a turret and it's not just a drop pod with a storm bolter that everyone's like, meh. No, this is a serious gun platform that is going to deep strike down. And, um, but it's a heavy support choice. Or is it? Because this is where the discussion comes in is in the Warhammer app, uh, which we all know is such an artistic act of electronic perfection. Um, it never has errors except that it lists the Tyrannocyte as a dedicated transport, which, as we all know, you can have an unlimited number of. Yeah, and, and in the points section, actually, at the back of the codex as well, it's under dedicated transports. Right, but if you look at it in the main part of the codex, it is in the heavy support section. It has the little white spiky explosion symbol for a heavy support choice. So th- that's going to have to get FAQ'd really quickly so that we know what yeah. um what battlefield role it's actually supposed to be i'm guessing that somebody just stamped the wrong symbol on the page yeah. in the codex and it's supposed to be dedicated transport but if that is the case you can spam these all day long because it's a dedicated transport and you could you could have a bunch of empty tyrannocytes deep striking down and it's a monstrous creature so give them upsec you you set up the set up, you know pick that the uh, high uh that high fleet it's got the high fleet keyword so give it the give it the high fleet and and pick monstrous creatures have obsec and you are just raining down obsec monsters with a bunch of heavy guns all over the table it's kind of a meme list but it could also potentially be a serious pain in the ass too so hopefully they some questions will be answered very quickly uh all right then flyers we won't go into but the the hive crone and the harpy are back the harpy is actually i think going to be worth a look even though we're not much of an aircraft uh meta at the moment um i always feel like there's always gonna be that one person who can squeeze them in i know the rtt i went to uh last weekend somebody brought a tyranny list and they had uh two harpies in their list i don't harpies are very very good they are they are very good they are as aircraft go they are very very good especially since unlike most aircraft tyranny aircraft have melee profiles they can charge they can do some they can do some hurt they're not just a one phase um object uh and then there's the sporocyst uh fortification t7 10 wounds bracketing profile it's got it's very similar to the tyrannocyte it's got you know five despiters but you can swap it out for five barb shanglers or five venom cannons but it's a fortification it doesn't move um you and the uh the interesting thing about that is it has the seed spores action at the start of your movement phase, one Sporocyst model from your army can start to perform this action. Um, when the action is completed at the end of the phase, um, when it's completed, set up a new friendly Spore Mines unit containing six models or a new friendly Mucolid Spores unit containing one model on the battlefield. The unit set up within six inches from the uh, uh, Sporocyst and wholly within 18 inches, uh, or sorry, it has to be more than six inches from an enemy model and within wholly within 18 inches of this model. Um, and then if you're playing a game that uses points limits, it does not cause any reinforcement. So you could have a sporocyst fortification, park it in the back of your table and just start spitting out spore mines and mucolid spores to further annoy and harass your opponent. Yeah. So but it, it, you can actually set it up uh, anywhere on the battlefield more than 12 for any model, enemy models. Um, and if it's within 12 inches of a friendly high, sign, synapse model, gain synapse as well. Um, so a little bit of utility as well. You yeah. Have to take one. Yeah. So anyway, that's it for the data sheets, guys. Uh, we are already at an hour and 25 minutes. So we're just going to, um, what do you want? You want to zip through uh, stratagems and just do some highlights? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So uh, now we're going to rewind uh, back, guys, uh, all the way back to um, 
what page are we going to? All the way back, if you're following along at home, we are going all the way back to page 62. Um, there's four pages of stratagem. So it's almost an entire podcast episode just to go through all of these. Um, so, you know, buy the book, guys. It's a lot. There's, there's so many stratagems and so many combinations, so many synergies to be put together in this book. It's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, what's, one of your, uh, what's one of your top picks? Um, I really like Adrenal Surge. So um, a unit that has adrenal glands in your fight phase, you can give them plus one attack for each model. Um, but if they're a monster, you add D3 to their attacks. Uh, it's one CP on a unit with 19 or less models, two CP on a unit that's bigger than that. Extra attack. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. Uh, I actually like the, the, the one right after it, Reinforced Hive Node. Um, it's a uh, uh, use this stratagem in any phase when a Tyranid Warriors or Tyranid Prime unit from your army is selected as the target of an attack. Until the end of the phase, each time an attack is allocated to a model in that unit, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack. If that unit contains five or fewer models, it costs one CP. Otherwise, it's two CP. Um, it's it's not transhuman. It's you know, but it's it's got that similar defensive ability. Minus one damage is sometimes even better than transhuman, frankly. Uh, yeah. because you're taking away the onus of whether your opponent rolls well or not on, yeah. on their wound rolls. It's just a, hey, whatever you roll, you're minus one damage. Do you see a lot of heavy bolter shots coming in or something? Pop this and... On a three-wound model as well, you know, yeah. a Thunderhammer comes in and it doesn't kill one. Right. Yeah, so that's that's exactly why I like that one. Uh, all right, you got another one? Yeah, so this is Enfolding Strike. Uh, this is for the Parasite and Mortrex. You use it in the movement phase after they've finished a normal move or advanced so they can't do if they fall back. Select one enemy unit that they've moved over, roll a d6 on a 2 to 5, they suffer d3 mortal wounds and become infected with parasites. On a 6, they suffer 3 mortal wounds and become infected with parasites. Uh, you'll remember that infecting something with parasites turns off its objective secured ability. Yeah. So this is a really nice way of zipping around 16 inches with this guy, or advancing as well, and then turning off objective secured on a 2. Yeah. Yep. It's real nice. Um... I just noticed something. This obviously, this codex, like every other, has the you know um, the the one CP pregame to give a unit an extra relic, uh, and then the plus one CP to give a a character um, an extra war uh, to give another character a warlord trait. We seem to be moving away in the last couple of codexes. We we're we're we seem to be moving away from the also having the stratagem to give a character two warlord traits. Yeah, I think the Harlequins had it in theirs, but in general, we're not seeing it a lot. Yeah, uh, Tau certainly didn't have it. I don't think Gene Steelers had it. GSC, I no. don't think had it. I don't think that Custodes have it, as I recall. Custodes Maybe. might have it. They might have it, but it definitely seems to be. You know, at the start of Ninth Edition, it seemed like everybody yeah. was getting it. Now the we're getting a couple of codexes that don't have it, so I'm wondering if that's going to be a just a case-by-case basis, or if maybe GW is trying to move away from that. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, all right. Um, obviously, I got I to gotta read out the, uh, the subterranean assault. One CP uses stratagem in the reinforcement step of your movement phase. When a high fleet Trigon or high fleet Trigon Prime model from your army is set up on the battlefield using its death from below ability, select one friendly high fleet unit with the troops battlefield role that is in strategic reserves. Set that unit up anywhere on the battlefield that is wholly within nine inches of the Trigon or Trigon Prime and not within nine inches of any enemy models. So put them in a strategic reserve and then you can still bring them up in the middle of the table as long as they're next to the, the Trigon or Trigon Prime. Like it. 
Like, yeah, I like that. I would have liked to see the stratagem let you put like a, a certain power level unit into strategic reserves for free. Because yes. as it stands, you kind of have to spend the CP to do that as well as do this. Yeah, you're spending uh, a CP for the strategy for the strategic reserves and another CP to bring him in deep strike. So yeah, yeah I agree. Um, it did it. It could have been a little less um, costly in the CP bank, but um, you know, still not the worst thing. Uh, there's also we got a, a shout out to rapid regeneration one CP. Use this stratagem in your command phase. Select one hive tendril model from your army. That model regenerates and regains up to D three lost wounds. Each model can only be regenerated once per turn. So Very nice, nice. You got to keep something alive. Throw throw D three extra wounds on it just to keep it. If you want to try to drag it out. Uh, what's your next one? Next one, Endless Swarm. 1 CP. Uh, use it in the start of the, your command phase. Select one Endless Multitude unit. As we've discussed, that's like the little Gribblies, Gargoyles, Hormigants, Termigants. Yep. Up to D3 plus 3 destroyed models can be added back to that unit with their full wounds remaining. They can only be set up within engagement range of enemy units that are already engagement range of the unit they're being added back to. All for 1 CP. Necrons are just rusting under their own tears at this point. It's just, just stop kicking the Necrons. It's just rough. Uh, all right. And then uh, also in the, in the uh, benefiting Gribblies uh, category, bounding advance, 1 CP, 2 CP. Uh, use this stratagem in your movement phase when a Hormagons unit from your army is selected to advance until the end of the turn. Each time that unit advances, do not make an advance roll. And still, uh, instead, until the end of the phase, they just, Add six inches to the move characteristic. They just auto advance six. And yep. that unit is still eligible to declare charge this turn, even though it advanced. If the unit has 15 or fewer models, this stratagem costs one CP. Otherwise, if you got greedy and got that extra five models to bump it up to 20, it's two CP. Mm. Fantastic. I mean, okay. I'll, I'll, um, I mean, you're probably going to lose a couple of Hormagons, bef- you know, in, in, from shooting in the first turn or two anyway. So the likelihood is you're going to spend the one CP. You're only going to spend one CP to advance, yeah. auto advance six and charge. And remember, guys, we already said they they already moved ten. So, um, and then so now they're going to launch forward sixteen and then charge, and then they have their six inch pile and move. It's going to get crazy. Hormigons yep. are awesome for movement. So yeah. awesome for movement. All right, you got one more. Uh, yeah. So. I want to shout out, um, and this one is a bit of a problem child for me, encircle the prey. Uh, so use this stratagem at the end of your turn. Select one borrower's unit or unit that can fly from your army. Remove them from the battlefield in the reinforcement step of your next movement phase. You set them back up uh, anywhere on the battlefield more than nine from any enemy models. Uh, obviously, if the battle ends and they're not on the battlefield, they count as destroyed, uh, and they can't do this if they were just set up on the battlefield from reserves that turn. Um, this to me is too powerful, and it's always going to happen, isn't it? You're going to have something that's a bit powerful. Yeah. Uh, you could do that. You could charge an enemy unit. They hit you back, and then you just you just leave battlefield. Um, there are some discussions on whether you could score a secondary like stranglehold, and then use the stratagem to leave the battlefield because you score as well at the end of the turn. Um, I think yeah. that's going to come down to tos, etc. I personally would prefer this stratagem to be um, the, in the movement phase, like yeah. most of the other ones are yeah. in a lot of other books. Yeah, I think Angels, uh, Ascent of Angels and 
some of those other uh uh, uh yeah yep. deadly ascent teleportation the death watch yeah um yeah because this means you could take a zoanthrope unit because they've got fly um and just remove them from the board so they can't be targeted and then drop down and do psychic the next turn you could do something similar with a hive tyrant as well that would yeah be or gargoyles this is the one way to make the gargoyles actually deep strike yeah so uh, all right. Um, yeah, I can see where that's going to potentially be a problem. All right, my my last uh, my last pick. I got to go with just because you know we've been maintaining a nice uh, aliens theme this episode. We got to talk about corrosive viscera two CP. Use this stratagem in the fight phase when a model in an acid blood unit from your army would lose a wound until the end of the, all they got to do is lose a wound. They don't have to die this time. Until the end of the phase, each time a model in that unit would lose a wound as the result of a melee attack, roll 1d6 on a 4+. The attacking model's unit suffers one mortal wound after making all of its attacks to a maximum of six mortal wounds. So. Harrispex. Harrispex. Has acid blood. 15 yep. wounds, I think. Yep. I'll, I'll splash some acid blood on you. Sure. Come, come hit me in melee. Take mortal wounds. Enjoy. So, um... Yeah, and it says each time a, the model would lose a wound, so you know you would just have. I guess you could just, if if he's going to take a whole lot of wounds in one turn, you're rolling a lot of dice. So, all right, you got one last one. Yeah, one last one. Um, so this one allows you to use a synaptic imperative of a unit that's already dead. So it's called synaptic legacy. You use it at the start of the battle round uh, when you select your synaptic imperative. If your warlord's on the battlefield and has the hive tendril keyword then you can select the synaptic imperative ability of a destroyed model from your army instead of one that's on the battlefield. However, if you've already used that synaptic imperative, you can't then use it again. If you lose your zoanthropes real early and you haven't used their synaptic ability, you can trigger this and you get their ability anyway, even though they're dead. Yeah, it's nice. It's good. It's a good... uh... It gives you a little bit more flexibility to make sure that your your plans aren't completely derailed in case you lose something that you you really were planning late game for for their uh, to use their imperative. So cool, like it. Uh, and like I said, guys, we 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 just talked about what eight nine stratagems out of a pay, out of four pages of you know seven to eight each. So there is a ton more stratagem in here. There's so many synergies, so much good stuff. I think this is a great book. I think it is yeah. a very strong codex. It's very fluffy. It's very you know, it really sticks to like every, pretty much every codex in ninth edition. They've really hit it out of the park, I think, with maintaining the spirit of the army and the the building a play style for that army that that makes sense and is works for the way that they're intended to in the in the background and the story. So, um, yeah, solid. And it's going to be a real pain in the butt for those of us playing against them. So, really thinking about going back to Death Watch. <sighs> so, anyway, all right. Uh, guys, um, I know we're running a little long, um, but we uh, obviously got to thank James and give give James his two minutes from Siege Studios. So uh, here's James. James, we're back for another episode. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Right. Skin tones. Now, I, recently, I've been a little bit partial to painting some heads, okay? Uh, I've got a technique down for like a normal tone, but what would you do if you wanted to start with like a darker skin tone? Um, and how would you like, I don't know, highlight up. And then I want to also know a lighter skin tone as well. So I want to know like the two extremes, where do we start in terms of colors, highlights, contrast, you name it. 
So, so I'll go down the route of, uh, of, of Games Workshop paints mainly because that's what most people have. Um, obviously, like the Scale 75, Vallejo, P3, all other manufacturers have really, really good selection of different tones and hues. Uh, but the vast majority of people are familiar with Games Workshop. Um, if we're talking like, uh, I'm not going to, like Salamander is a little bit different because the skin tone of a Salamander is very different to say, for example, just uh, uh, different other skin tones. Um, but generally speaking, I'd probably go down the route of using, say, for example, like Rhinox Hide as, as, the, as, the, as the base coat color. Um, now I do a lot of my a lot of my basic skin. I do that with an airbrush and get the the graduation of tonal variance to the light um, by increasing the the saturation of the color, as in increasing the brightness or hue of the color towards where light comes from. So I'll start by undercoating it with black, uh, and then what I'll do is I'll get like rhinoxide, put that through the airbrush, uh, cover the head in its entirety from every angle below and front above. Uh, I'll then get the next colour, which could, for example, be like Gawthor Brown, uh, for example, which is a nice sort of uh, uh, more saturated browny kind of colour. If you don't like that, you could use Mournfang instead. And then obviously do that from like a 45 degree angle, uh, catching the nose, the tops of the cheeks, the the the, the, the central part of the face. Um, just generally speaking, doing it so that it's catching light. And the undersides will be slightly darker because of the Rhinox. And then I'd probably pick like um, a little bit of maybe Kislev and just mix that into the, the mid-tone colour, which would be your Gawthor or your Mournfang. And then I'd do that from directly above so that it catches just the, the, the absolute precipice of each of the facial structures so that you're only catching the highest points. Um, that's generally to get a decent skin tone. The thing is, is faces are so intricate and so detailed that unless you layer, you could do the same thing with a brush, but obviously the paint would be extremely thin and uh, involve a lot more time, which obviously the airbrush saves us. But generally speaking, I would use an airbrush to apply the skin and uh, and get the the skin applied to the face and multiple faces at one time. While what you so you can do the air, all the heads at the same time if you're doing the same sort of skin tone across all the faces. Um, but generally speaking, I would use an airbrush to get that skin on super smooth, which is the most important thing. Um, and then I, I I'm not a big fan of washing all that skin with a wash all over. Um, I would then sort of selectively add. Sh- further shadows to the face with a brush really intricately in all the different areas of the facial structure um, using what's called pin shading or line shading. I'd do it that way. Uh, and then obviously you'd pick your, just your highlight points um, and use your highlight colors. So again, we'd probably be using sort of like for a darker skin tone, you'd probably go for like a bit of a Kislev or a Gawthor kind of like color to then really um, sort of pick out the high points. And then you can even add a little bit of ivory into that Kislev uh, or r- rather than ivory, you could use flayed one flesh or shanty bone um, to just boost that color. Um, you never want to make the jumps in color super, super stark. And what I mean by that is having huge jumps in the color saturation. Um, I'd always recommend uh, boosting the previous color with a slightly brighter color because then that will give you a graduation and a more subtlety to the face. Um, unless you had a light source that was directly next to the face, you're not going to get bright spots of color on the face. It's going to be very subtle. Uh, and multiple highlight stages will give you that really, really refined graduation, which gives you a solid skin tone and uh, a nice varied skin tone, which is important. Um, so that's for a, a darker skin tone. So before uh, we, sorry, James, just before we move on then, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. getting from you there. What we need to do then is actually, if we, if we need to actually paint a face, we don't stick it on the model when we're building. We need yeah, to- correct. Sorry, I missed that out. Yeah, no, I, that's I, all right. I, I'd never, ever, ever... Unless it's a metal model whereby the face is, is actually on the model in its, in, in, to start off with, I never would really use, uh, I'd always do the head separately, purely down to the fact that it just allows you to focus on that one piece um, rather than being distracted by the rest of the model, which, which isn't helpful sometimes. 
um, yeah, I'd always do the head separate. I think and it adds a drill a hole, stick a pin in it, and then stick the other side of the pin into a cork or something. Yeah, cork, or you can get yourself a shot glass, make yourself a little rotisserie um, with like multiple different sort of stalks on it, so you can do all the heads at the same time. Like I, I very much implore people to to remain within one frame of thought, and what I mean by that is if you're painting heads, concentrate on painting the heads and do them all at the same time. Um, you're going to get more consistent results when you're doing that rather than just one bare head. Um, obviously, if it's like a character that you absolutely love and it's only one face, that's that's not a problem at all. Um, but if you've got 10 bare heads to paint then then do them all at the same time because your focus and your mindset and the way you're going to be using the brush and all that is going to be the same every time on all the heads as you do them right brilliant okay so that's darker tones then what about like a lighter skin tone cool so like uh being a blood angel player i paint a lot of love sort of palish sort of skin tones um and i'd always recommend starting starting with a quite close set of colors so my recipe and the colors that i typically use for like sort of blood angels or empress children uh, would be um, Cadian Flesh Tone, Kisser Flesh, and then Flayed One Flesh, and then Ivory is my booster for my mid-tone or my highlight. Uh, and the Ivory is the only colour that's not a GW colour there. It's uh, from Vallejo model uh, model colour range. Um, and generally the same process. So I would undercoat them black, do Cadian all over from every angle. I'd then get the Kiss Lev, do that from a 45-degree angle, just wrapping it and dusting it on the underside slightly so that you get a lovely smooth transition. What you don't want, is uh, to on the face to have solid lines where you where you you, you put the colours on, um, because no lighting will give you that kind of effect. You want it to be a very subtle dark at the bottom on the undersides through the mid tone to the light on the top, um, and then again yeah, kiss there from the forty five and then flayed one directly from above, and then what I would do is I would then uh, sort of pin shade it or line shade it again with uh, with with for example like a, a watered down bugman's bugman's glow or you could use uh, any of the sort of like sepias or right right is a very good color to sort of pin shade with because it's got a lot of red in it as a as a as a, as a wash or shade um obviously the human face has got a lot of veins and sort of uh, flesh underneath the surface skin so you want to convey that that rouge or ready kind of color and and right is a really good way of doing it um if you think it looks a little bit too brown i'd always do a 50 50 of Reichland and carisberg crimson uh, it gives you a really nice uh, redder brown but it's not red so it, it adds, just adds a really nice sort of tone to the face as well um and then yeah just go through your highlight stages and just do, add a couple of highlight stages very subtly um skin just as a little side note is very uh, a lot of people get very apprehensive about it um and when you're doing it with the brush uh, and using the brush and creating friction that's where texture starts to come in but that's why the airbrush is really good for, for using it because it just allows you to allows you to get on that smooth coat of, of paint onto the face, which is really, really important to sell the overall uh, visage of a face. Yeah, love it. So my top tips are there then, to all takeaways, use an airbrush. And if you don't, yeah. stick a helmet on. Right. Love it. No worries. James, thank you very much, mate. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you on the next one. All right. Thank you, James, yet again. And uh, that is it for this week. Uh, next week, I think Steve will be back. Um, he was he was out not feeling not well last uh, last week. This week, he's actually at Warhammer World. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing there. I believe I I, I have it on good information that he's actually there uh, posing for the new Rubeau Gilliman model. Uh, but uh, maybe that's just a rumor. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, but we'll we'll ask Steve what exactly he was doing at Warhammer World. Uh, next week, we're also going to talk about all the things that were revealed and are being revealed as we speak at uh, at Warhammer Fest, which is going on right now. Guys, go to check out the Warhammer community page. They've got some really cool 
uh, teases and, and model releases that they showed and uh, they previewed yesterday for 40K. They're doing, I think, AOS today. Um, not, not sure what else they'll do the rest of the weekend, but we'll talk about all that, at least the 40K stuff next week. Um, I also think we're going to try to talk about setting up a cheat sheet uh, or we might set up some other stuff. But anyway, uh, good stuff going on. Until then, uh, this is Dave Calmel from Michael Costello saying, why don't we just take off and nuke the entire side from orbit? Later, guys.